Hello, everybody. This is the Ether Podcast, and I'm Rodrigo. And this is Ryan. And I'm Rachel. And today we're continuing our series within a series about uh, the temple and Jewish life. And last time we looked very much in depth about Jesus and the temple and so the significance of his actions surrounding the temple, both when he goes and overturns tables and also when he curses a tree. And today uh, we're going to be looking more in depth as to the people uh, that interact with Jesus in Mark 11, 12 and 13. And that's the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. Uh, we encounter these people a little bit all throughout the gospel and all throughout the gospels. But um, specifically in Mark 12, there, Jesus enters into a series of confrontations with the members of the Sanhedrin. And just like last time, we looked in depth at the temple because it's important to understand the depth of the temple, to understand the depth of Jesus' actions surrounding the temple. Today, we're going to look deeply into who the Sanhedrin were, who these men were, a little bit of the history of them, as well as the Pharisees, in order to understand more deeply what is going on. Because after all, these are the men that decide to put Jesus to death. And I think it's, it's good for our understanding where that comes from, uh, why they're doing that, why they, uh, they're so uh, displeased with Jesus that they would think to take his life. And also for our greater understanding of the gospel and even of Jesus' sacrifice, I think it's important for us to understand who these men were, what they were about, a little bit of their history. And so without further ado, we're going to take a deep dive into these religious leadership groups and hopefully you enjoy it. I know that we've uh, really enjoyed putting this lesson together for you guys. And uh, let's let's get into it. Awesome. Well, we're, we are breaking from tradition in that we are not going to read a passage. Um, instead, what we're going to do is first do a whole overview of what we're talking about. So we are starting in Mark 11:27, and we're going all the way down through the end of Mark 12 for this passage. And true to Mark form, he is staying in rapid fire motion and just putting things one right after the other after the other. Um, so first we're going to break down who Jesus is, talk uh, is talking to, and then we're going to go in depth as to all these different groups. Starting in Mark eleven twenty seven through 12, verse 12, um, Jesus is first interacting with the whole Sanhedrin and having a conversation with them. And then it goes straight from there to Mark 12, 13 through 17. Um, he is talking with the Pharisees and the Herodians. And then immediately following that, he's having a conversation with the Sadducees and about resurrection and marriage and all those things. And then one brave scribe rises up and decides to have a conversation with Jesus himself um, in Mark 12, 28 through 34. And then at the end of that, um, Jesus begins a whole series of teachings um, in the temple against the people he has just been talking to. Um, and so, like Rodrigo said, we're going to get into who are these people and what did they think, what did they believe, and why is Jesus interacting with them and really going against what they're saying. So first we wanted to start with just a general overview 
Um, most of the people who read the New Testament right now are not from a Jewish background and are not, we're not raised in a Jewish tradition. So we're going to start with what makes a Jew a Jew? And so, Ryan, you're going to start us off with that. Yeah. Even within the context of Judaism, which is one topic, one idea, one faith, there are so many different ideas, so many different people, so many different thoughts and opinions that it's easy to find lots of gray areas, lots of questions that can pop up. And there was a lot of disagreement that found its way through Judaism. It had been around for about 2,000 years, uh, 3,000 years by the time Jesus came around. And so it had had a lot of time for people to get in there and start putting ideas in and having disagreements. And, but there were a couple of concepts that every Jew would have agreed on. And this is important to know what these concepts were because these were the unifying pieces. Outside of all the disagreements that Jews could have, there were three what you could call non-negotiables, those things that, that were a part of every Jew's life. The first non-negotiable was circumcision. And we're all pretty familiar with what circumcision is, but one thing to know about it is that Jews looked at this practice as it separating them from the other peoples of the Middle East uh, and uh, those tribes that were there. Other peoples did this. Other cultures practiced circumcision, but the Jews looked at it as a holy obligation for them. And it was something that set them apart and made them special, that, that it was knit into the fabric of their faith. And so it wasn't something that they did as a a fad or anything. Um, culturally, it was so knit into identifying them in a physical way that they were somebody different than the other peoples. The second non-negotiable was the Mosaic law being the primary text for their faith. So everybody would have looked at the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Christian Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books of Moses. And every Jew would have looked at that as the primary text for their faith. Now, within Judaism, they, different people would have looked at it and interpreted it differently. Some would have interpreted it literally. Some would have done it figuratively. Some would have seen the law as a starting point and added additional teachings and traditions that would fill in some of the gaps. Some believe that nothing could be added to the law and that there wasn't any traditions that could be there. But everybody believed that at the bare minimum, we've got the Mosaic law. Mm-hmm. So that was the second non-negotiable. The third non-negotiable was that the temple was the one true place for worshiping God and where Judaism could really be carried out in its full, its fullness uh, and its fullest expression. That God was in all places, but Jerusalem held a special place in God's heart. They kind of looked at it as God's home away from home, and that the temple was the site where 
true Judaism happened, which is why people made pilgrimages to uh, Jerusalem throughout their life, that it was a normal part of their faith and participating in their faith to go where the temple was, to go to Jerusalem, to be a part of that religious center. Mm -hmm. And it's why when you look at people like the Samaritans, that they didn't make the cut in the minds of the Jews, that they had the right God, they had the right law, but they had the wrong temple. And so they, they said, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. You can stay up here in Samaria and worship God up here. And the Jews completely disagreed with that. And that one piece was enough to separate them in the minds of the Jews from being the chosen people of God. So those were the three non-negotiables. And now we can get into disagreements between the different groups, but those were the things that brought them all together and served kind of as the starting point and identified them as Jews. It's what made them Jews. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. I think I think that's a great starting point. And I know that, so one of the groups that comes up at least twice in this passage are the scribes. So Rodrigo, you are going to teach us more about what a scribe is and what does that mean? Yeah, so basically scribes were uh, professional writers. In antiquity, most people, the majority, the vast majority of people didn't know how to read and write. So they were men who basically dedicated themselves to the keeping of text and sometimes uh, it was legal text, sometimes it was religious text, specifically in the context of what we're talking about, Mark 11 and 12, the scribes were the scribes of the temple, and they were in charge of both preserving and studying scripture. And they made up the majority of the Sanhedrin, and they had a lot of power, both because uh, of their function and their influence. These were men that were very studied. These were men uh, whose say had a lot of weight. And they came into prominence after the, uh, the time of the Babylonian exile. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today actually had its birth with the Babylonian exile. And um, they sort of saw themselves as gatekeepers of Judaism, which is wh probably why they saw such a threat in Jesus. And uh, just to recap one of the things that we said during the introduction, Jesus at the end of Mark 12, teaches against the teachings of the scribes and specifically says to the people who are listening to him teach to watch out for the scribes. And again, these were very important people who occupied uh, a very important function in Jewish society. To reiterate, part of what they did was preserve the scriptures, which was a huge deal. And at the same time, they, their opinions and their teachings on said scripture had a lot of weight. And so Jesus saying and challenging them was a huge deal. Um, and, and again, they were only a small part of, well, not as, they made the biggest part of the Sanhedrin, but it's only one of the groups that sort of Jesus challenge, challenges when he comes to Jerusalem. All right. Um, so the next group... Uh, that he challenges. I, it's funny when I hear the words Pharisees and Sadducees, I always think about that song I had to sing in, when I was in Bible school growing up, that you don't want to be a Pharisee and you don't want to be a Sadducee. But we're going to go deeper than that. 
and talk more about who they are. Um, so in the passage, right after Jesus is talking to the whole Sanhedrin, um, he's then talking to the Pharisees and the Herodians. And we're going to get into the Herodians just a little bit later because they're a smaller group. But the Pharisees were a pretty prominent, influential group. So we're going to start with them. Yeah. After you get outside of Jerusalem, most people didn't have the opportunity every week to come into Jerusalem. And so the people that become the, the teachers of the law outside of Jerusalem were the Pharisees. They were leading the churches and leading the synagogues in these smaller towns surrounding Jerusalem. So the Sadducees kind of set up their, their home base in Jerusalem, and the Pharisees were in these smaller towns outside of Jerusalem primarily, and um, definitely within Jerusalem as well. But the Sadducees were a much smaller group. Pharisees were a larger group and much more widespread. Um, but one thing that we notice that in spite of how often they show up in the New Testament, we never see them show up in the Old Testament. And what we find by looking at uh, some of the writings from Josephus is that these guys came into existence somewhere between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So a big window of time. But Josephus first mentions the Pharisees in connection to with, with some events that were happening around 130 BC. So by the time that Jesus came around, these guys had only been around about 150 years. Which is nothing in biblical times. Nothing in those biblical times. Um, but they'd still been around for a while and had made their presence very well known. Um, most of the information that we have about the Pharisees comes from Josephus, who says that he was a former Pharisee. The New Testament, which obviously has a very skewed uh, opinion of the Pharisees. We tend to come away from the New Testament viewing the Pharisees as the bad guys. And then right. uh, writings from Jewish uh, rabbis starting about the year 250 uh, through 500. And so those three sources are where we find our ma the majority of our information about the Pharisees. They get their name from the Hebrew word paras, which means to separate. And we're not really sure what they were separating from. It, it could be that they viewed themselves as being separate from everyone else, like they're holy and we're different. But it, it probably is more closely connected to them viewing themselves as separators. So we are the people who know the word, know the law, and we can identify what's clean and unclean, which is more than just objects, it's people, and identifying what makes right. you clean, what makes you unclean. Are you an unclean person? Normally, are you unclean at the moment? And so they were the ones that really divided um, and looked at people and would separate the, the good people in their minds from the bad people in their minds. And we'll get into why that's significant in a little bit later. But um, some things that they believed, they believed uh, that not only did the Jewish faith come from the scriptures, but it also came from traditions that were handed down from their ancestors. So the Pharisees and their ancestors had filled in all these holes within the law with their own laws to try and 
fill the gaps and try and answer questions. So you have the question, how do we keep the, the Sabbath properly? Well, the Bible says don't work, which is a very vague and broad statement. So they say, all right, well, what does it mean to work? What should I not do? And they would come up with these lists and these laws, again, to define and to separate what made you clean and what made you unclean. And so they had all these additional ideas. They would figure out how to address situations that weren't addressed specifically in the Bible. So, for example, the Bible talks about don't eat the animal of the split hoof. Well, what about the chicken? Chicken actually was imported into the Middle East and came in there just before Jesus' birth, and it doesn't have a split hoof. But what does the Bible say about this? It's not like a Mm -hmm. flying animal and it's on the ground. And so they had rules about, can we eat chicken? And if the Pharisees existed today, they'd be the ones that would address a lot of these other questions that the Bible doesn't address, whether it's talking about how do we handle the internet or technology or cars or um, urbanization and all these different other kinds of questions that the Bible itself doesn't directly identify and and give us answers to. Mm. They also came up with beliefs about the spirit world, uh, which is different than the Sadducees, as we'll talk about. And because the Old Testament doesn't really talk about angels and demons. And so they came up with traditions that really filled in these blanks. And they figured out how demons and angels, um, what they were like and how they operated. They gave names to the angels and uh, came up with traditions about how the devil and God, uh, what what did that relationship look like? They also believed in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the Old Testament doesn't really address what happens after we die outside of a couple mentions of a place called Sheol, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really describe what that place is like. And then there's a, a prophecy in Daniel 12, 2, where Daniel says, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so as they read this this passage, that's all it says. But they took that and and developed this whole idea of what is resurrection going to be looking like? Who's going to be there? What is it going to be like? Um, Who gets rewards? Who gets punished? Uh, Does everybody raised from the dead. And this put them at odds with other groups that said, you know, it's not really even talking about resurrection. It's more of a figurative kind of thing, talking about coming back from the from captivity in Babylon. And so those were some of their ideas. So they would separate people out by adding laws to the law, building up this larger tradition and believe that that carried just as much weight as the law itself. They believed in things that weren't expressly stated in the law with the spirit world, resurrection of the dead. And so they get all these additional ideas that the Sadducees did not have. They tried to bring specificity to areas in the in the Bible that may not have been very totally clear. Which I think is is helpful. I'm a guy who who wants to know if you say that you want to paint a room blue, I want to know what kind of 
blue do you want it painted and do you want all the walls painted or do you want it done in a different way i want specificity is nice because it makes you uh secure in what you believe and what you're doing you don't like the that guesswork really is uncomfortable and so i think that that came out but also i think in the wake of what we see with the babylonian exile where we've got people who had clearly broken God's law. God turned away from them. And you get people who come back to Jerusalem and say, wow, how do we stop that from happening again? Let's put up some boundaries. Let's put up some extra rules and some laws. Um, Let's actually study God's word. And you know what? It's not answering all the questions that I've got. So let's let's create some of these answers and fill in some of these these gaps. Mm some of these holes here. All right. And so you said that some of their beliefs are different than the Sadducees. So then what, what makes a Sadducee a Sadducee? Well, the old joke is that the Sadducees are sad, you see, because, (laughs) because they didn't believe in things like resurrection, that they didn't believe in anything outside of the Mosaic law. We have the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Torah, or the Pentateuch or the books of Moses all refer to the same things. And they said, that is our bread and butter. Anything outside of that, we're not putting stock into. And so they didn't have answers and didn't really care about finding answers to a lot of the questions that the Pharisees were delving into. So they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead because that was not brought up in the Torah or the books of Moses. Uh, They didn't worry about angels and demons. They believed that there was nothing that happened after this life, that any rewards that you had were in this life. And so if you were not living a prosperous life, you clearly were not being blessed by God. And so that led them to be sad, you see. (laughs) Um, But uh, their name probably came from uh, Zadok, which means righteousness, in Hebrew, but it's also the name of the first high priest under Solomon. And so they probably came about in an effort to restore the the Zadokite line of priests under the Maccabees. So Jerusalem had been under the the control of the the Persian Empire and then the uh, empire of Alexander the Great and some of these Greek empires and Egyptian empires. And finally, the Maccabees, who were Jewish kings, they were the ones that were finally able to push out the, the Greeks. Um, and for about 100 years before the Romans came in, they were their own kingdom again for a little bit of time. And it's during this time that they believed the Sadducees came back and said, let's restore the high priest line back to the line of Zadok. And so they become the Zadokites and, and the sons of Zadok and Zadok and Sadducees. I don't know how the, the language translation right. works, but that's probably where it comes it from. It morphed. It morphed. But these guys uh, set up camp in Jerusalem. They occupied aristocratic levels within Jewish society, and uh, they were rich. But again, these were guys that were looking at themselves as, and saying, we've got rewards here. We're clearly following God's laws uh, because we've been blessed here in this in this life. Um, but 
they, because they were so tied to the temple that when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, the Sadducees disappear from history. So um, it's, that's kind of where, where their timeline ends. So they didn't have a very long period of history. The Pharisees, a uh, little bit longer, didn't need necessarily the temple to exist mm-hmm. and to thrive. Um, so the Sadducees existed for a short window of time, and the Pharisees, much larger period of time. They were the smaller temple-running rich guys in, in Jerusalem. I think both those backgrounds are awesome. Um, and that leads us into the governing body, I guess you could say, of the Sanhedrin and what their role is in all of this, because it's not, the Sanhedrin is made up of groups of people, I guess you could say. Um, I know, Rodrigo, you've been studying the Sanhedrin, so give us the background, the history of the Sanhedrin. Yes, so the origins of the Sanhedrin uh, have to do with the end of the Babylonian exile, which by the end of it, they were under the Persians. And so when Nehemiah and Ezra go to back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the walls, respectively, um, who is in charge at the time are the, um, the aristocratic council, which was made up of uh, priests uh, who have, were pretty high in position, even though the Jews hadn't been a nation for a long time. There was a group of people who were of the descendants of Levi who still sort of were, were seen with some degree of uh, Judaic authority, if you will. And the other person in charge was uh, Zerubbabel, who was uh, the, Jude- the governor of Judea, uh, that the Persians sort of put in charge of Judea. And he was of Davidic descent. He came from the line of David. But then Zerubbabel dies, and basically he is the last, quote-unquote, descendant of David, at least uh, until Jesus shows up. And so who's left in charge are the high priests. And so that's sort of the beginning of the Sanhedrin through a period of about 200 years at different times. Uh, that group of people sort of expands and grows. At some point, it, it begins to include the scribes, which I already said are part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, at some point, the Pharisees were part of the Sanhedrin. During Jesus' time, the Pharisees weren't really part of the Sanhedrin. Um, and again, over a period of about 200 years or more than that, uh, the Sanhedrin enjoys a certain degree of authority. Uh, probably at the height of their authority is about, uh, I would say, about maybe 70 to 80 years before Jesus is even born. Uh, they bring Herod the Great, not the current Herod that's in charge of uh, Israel at the time of Jesus, but his grandfather or great-grandfather. Uh, they bring him, who at the time is the governor of Judea, they bring him to trial. The Sanhedrin were so powerful at some point that they could bring the governor of a province to trial. And of course, Herod is acquitted. And then at some point, he uh, takes vengeance on the Sanhedrin and kills all of the leaders. And uh, during sort of Herod's reign, if you will, um, the Sanhedrin only has religious power and not necessarily any political power. 
by the time Jesus is in Jerusalem, by the time we are uh, in Jesus' time, the Sanhedrin is basically in charge of both the judicial uh, judicial law and religious law. And basically, they were the highest court of the land, if you will. They enjoyed the most authority. Uh, in the Roman Empire, not every part of the Roman Empire had uh, the privilege of having Roman laws. And Israel was one of those, those places that didn't have Roman laws, per se. The Romans were there to keep a certain amount of order and sort of uh, allegiance to the Roman Empire. But who made the laws for Israel as a whole was their San the Sanhedrin. And actually, interestingly enough, the Sanhedrin's authority didn't extend beyond Jerusalem, but the influence of the laws did. And what I mean by that is um, they couldn't have prosecuted if he, Jesus had he not come to Jerusalem. Part of the reason why most of the time when Jesus is in Galilee and he's basically in the country preaching and performing miracles and all this stuff, and we don't hear of the Sanhedrin, is because the Sanhedrin's authority was limited to Jerusalem. That's not to say that their influence didn't travel that far, because they did. I mean, again, they were the highest court of the law, but the only way in which Jesus uh, could have been submitted to their authority if, is if he was in Jerusalem. And that's part of the reason why him coming to Jerusalem is such a big deal, because part of what he's doing is he's submitting to them. Um, you know, who belonged to the uh, Sanhedrin were the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And we've uh, talked about a few of those already. Uh, the elders, interestingly enough, were uh, not just uh, religious people, but they were, they were the very influential members of the society in Jerusalem. So some of these were noblemen, some of these were rich aristocrats who had... Uh, come to prominence enough to be part of this council. And uh, like I said, their their function, more than anything, was to, uh, to have authority over spiritual, political, and legal affairs for all Jews. So again, the Sanhedrin was a big deal. And the fact that Jesus challenges them is a big deal. And, you know, part of the reason we've been talking about this is to sort of arrive at this place because I think it's important for everybody to understand the background of what's happening and the fact that Jesus, <sighs> the fact that Jesus challenges uh, this body who has all this authority, who has all these political pull, who's basically in charge of justice and who's basically in charge of um, not only legal, but also religious law is a huge deal. And again, given the context of what we're reading here in Mark 11 and 12, uh, Jesus is really, in a sense, digging his grave and doing so uh, very willingly. Yeah, I, I have really appreciated just sitting here listening to both of you guys and, and all the research that you guys have done because... Both of you have referenced the origins of these groups. And it's helpful, I think, to remember that a lot of life happens in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
and things happen and develop during that time and and it can be can, over 400 years yeah right i it's it's easy to forget that if you just go from malachi go straight into matthew you, it feels very jarring you don't really know what's going on all of a sudden all these structures and people groups and um religious organizations are referenced in the new testament and you're like i've never heard of these people before um and so 400 years pass and a lot of the things that you guys have just touched on had its beginning stages during that time frame or right around that time frame um, in Jewish life. And so I think it's important, you know, to, to bring that to light because um, although it was relatively new in the whole scheme of the nation of Israel, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, these groups are established um, they had been around for at least a hundred years, most of them. Um, and so, you know, it establishes the world that Jesus is moving in, um, at the time that he's on the scene. Yeah. There is so much that happens there. I mean, you think that there's, it's hard to compare American history to what happened in that day and age, but it's been about 200 years since the revolutionary war. And you think about how much has changed in the United States alone in 200 years where society is completely different, technologies are different, uh, the structure of society is completely different and would be absolutely unrecognizable to those people. Then you double that timeline and you just imagine, man, we're talking about 200 years still to go, how much time could change um, over that, that course of time. Um, now I will say that our history and the speed of change and the speed of, uh, development has just absolutely gone up. Absolutely. And so it's hard to compare 400 years in our era with Mm. 400 years in that time, but it's still 450 years of, of human evolution and giving ideas and people groups time to, to settle into an area and for things to change. And we've obviously seen the end of several different world powers um, coming in and reshaping the, the political landscape of that area. Um, so, yeah, so these guys would have been totally ingrained. Right. Um, so we just, I know we talked about wanting to address some of these smaller groups within Judaism, the Herodians are mentioned um, in this passage. Um, so before we bring it all back to Mark, um, let's talk a little bit about these smaller groups that kind of peek out their heads at certain points, and then we don't hear much of them after that. Yeah. Yeah, so if you, if you count the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, that's three groups— um, Josephus, as he's talking about this time period, he refers to this this other group that that didn't really have a name, and he called it the fourth philosophy. That it wasn't a group of people that necessarily um, self identified, but they were a group that sort of had the same mentality. And the biggest idea within this group was the idea of freedom 
being a major part of their faith, um, where they wouldn't call anyone king except God alone. And so it was highly uh, nationalistic, which flies in the face of their Roman occupiers. And so within this fourth philosophy that Josephus identifies, you get smaller groups. Um, and one of them is, is the zealots. We hear from time to time about zealots. Uh, we talk about Simon the zealot being one of the, uh, one of the disciples and one of the apostles. And so we kind of make a lot out of the zealots, but the zealots were actually a very small group. They were pretty militaristic. Um, we think that Barabbas uh, had been arrested because he had killed a man because he was, because Barabbas was a zealot. Um, so you get a couple of these guys making appearances in the New Testament, but outside of that, we don't see much mention of them, but they would have belonged to this larger group, the fourth philosophy. Um, but then we get into the, the Herodians um, who show up from time to time. And, and Rod, you want to tell us a little bit about, about these guys? Uh, the Herodians, more than anything, were a political party, and uh, they wanted to restore Herod to the throne uh, in Judea. Uh, and probably their biggest, uh, where we see them um, challenge Jesus is they're trying to uh, sort of catch Jesus in his own words and find an excuse to arrest him. And again, it's, it's not necessarily a very prominent group in the uh, New Testament. They're only mentioned a few times, uh, but they're clearly um, in conjunction with the Pharisees trying to get Jesus out of the way. Even though the Pharisees and the Herodians had separate philosophies where the Herodians were very much about Herod, the Pharisees were very much about uh, independence from, from Rome. Um, and so they were politically opposite. Um, and so as you look and you see the Herodians and the Pharisees come at Jesus, it's interesting to see these two team up because they essentially are saying to each other, hey, we're going to try and trip him up from our end, you try and trim up, trip him up from your end, and either way, one of us will get him. Um, so, right, and I think frenemies. another thing to add. Sorry, um, Ryan, I interrupted. I was just going to say that they seem to be like frenemies, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I think the other, the other interesting thing to add is that even uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees also didn't agree on stuff. And it's interesting because even though, for example, the Sanhedrin was a, a council that was made up of all these people. Obviously, like any, I guess, group of men, there was a, uh, a certain amount of um, disagreement within that group, and there was a certain amount of uh, hostilities and all that stuff, but they all seemed to come together against Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, that's important to point out that even, uh, even though there, were, there was intrigue between all these groups, the one thing that they do seem to agree with is let this guy, let, let's get this guy Jesus out of here yeah. yeah 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 it's it's amazing how how jesus just one guy can can <laughs> stir the pot with each one of these different other groups and i i think that it's important to keep that in mind but i think one of the things that i notice as i look at all the interactions that jesus has with the pharisees or the sadducees or the scribes is that they always came against him with some sort of comment or question about interpretation of the law. Mm -hmm. How do you read this? How should we do that? Um, what's going to happen? That there's never, 
they're never addressing the idea of knowing God. And I think that that's what Jesus's big point is as he opposes these guys where what, what we see is that when Jesus stands up against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that I, I think he's standing up against a very specific problem that both of these groups and, and even the smaller other groups represented within the Jewish faith. And that was that they, they, they all had a problem of heart mm-hmm. and of devotion to God. And what, it, what they were more devoted to was their religion, how to do their religion, how to adhere to a system that had been created and Jesus keeps looking at them and saying, you don't understand the heart that is behind everything that God is saying throughout the law. You're so focused on traditions and should we have traditions or not have traditions? Um, who is Moses? And we, we revere Moses. And you're missing the point of who Moses was. Moses was to point you back to me, back to God and you're missing it. You're so focused on words and you're so focused on how to interpret these laws and how to, how to go about things that you're missing the, the intention of my word, the intention of everything that has come in the scriptures. And I think it's a, a problem that dogs us even now as Christians in the 21st century, which makes this an important study for us to do, to look at who these guys are and what they believe, because we so often want to look at our faith and we want to figure out what does God expect of Mm -hmm. me? Mm -hmm. And we want to turn it into a list of to do's. What do I need to do? And what is going to help me? get to heaven. What does God want me to do? Well, he wants me to give up this and he wants me to give up that. And he wants me to start doing this. And he wants me to start doing that rather than focusing on the heart that's behind it. And I've been reading in Philippians and uh, in Philippians three, Paul talks about this idea and he, and he does it in such a great way. He says um, in Philippians three, verse one, it says further, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I have myself have reasons for such confidence. And so what he's talking about are these guys known as Judaizers who were Christian believers who believed that to be a Christian, you first needed to be a Jew. So in order to really be a Christian, you needed to do certain things. So they would show up in towns and they would meet with these young Christian groups and they'd say, what you need to do is you need to become circumcised because remember that's one of those non-negotiables within the Jewish faith. You need to be circumcised so that you can become a Jew. Then you can become a Christian. 
And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to turn Christians into Jews who can then turn into Christians. And Paul is saying, no, these, these evildoers are simply mutilators of the flesh and that we serve God by his spirit who boasts in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He continues in verse four. If someone else thinks that I have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. That would have been thumbs up from, from all these different Jewish right. groups um, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, um, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law. I was a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead, tipping his hat to his, uh, his Pharisee background. But, but right. seeing that, that what Paul is saying is, look, if, if you want to look at the things that I've done, I've done a lot of stuff. And the things that I've done are great things. I've got, I come from an amazing family. I've got an amazing background uh, with, with my family. I have trained um, and uh, upheld the highest standards to become a Pharisee, that we don't understand that what people who are Pharisees actually did with memorizing, they memorized the Torah. That you and I memorized a couple of scriptures, but these guys memorized the first five books of the Bible. You want to talk about guys right. that knew the word of God? These guys were it. And Paul's saying, that's me. That's what I did. Um, and you couldn't find fault in me for obeying the, the scriptures that I did everything I was supposed to do. I was faultless and none of that matters. The only thing that matters is my faith in Jesus and knowing Jesus. And I think that's what Jesus himself is trying to get the Pharisees and the Sadducees to understand is y'all are putting these, these roadblocks in your own paths you're trying to focus so much on how do we obey the law that you're missing the whole idea behind what this is all about. Yeah. And, you know, just to, um, I think you make a very good point because even the way the Mark 11 and 12 end, um, ends with a somewhat of a well-known passage in which, uh, Jesus is at the temple and he sees uh, a poor widow put a few copper coins into the temple offering. And basically what Mark does there is that from the, from the end of Mark 11, all through Mark 11, Jesus has all these confrontations with different members of the Sanhedrin. And at the end of chapter 12, as a contrast of these men who 
are opposing Jesus, who are displaying a lack of faith, uh, who Jesus openly sort of defies, in contrast to the Sanhedrin, is this widow who Jesus basically says who, who that's given more than somebody who has a lot and who is displaying great faith. And again, I think Mark puts that, that passage with the widow there to, to really show exactly what you just talked about, Ryan, that it's a matter of the heart. Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy um, to get caught up in, um, like you were saying, in, in all the things that we have to do and all the things that we have to learn. Uh, I think even in us putting these podcasts together and our videos together, one of the things uh, that we really try to do is to get at the heart of the scriptures and not just simply present a bunch of information. And I think, yeah. you know, to sort of bring it a little bit back to to sort of summarize a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about and bringing it back to the context of Mark and the greatest, the greater context of, I guess, the overall uh, story of Scripture, I think is like all throughout Scripture, God is, is always calling us back to Him. And He's always calling us to have a heart for Him. And, and certainly at times, there's a whole issue of repentance and there's a whole issue of changing our actions but where god always begins with that is with our heart with understanding who he is and understanding uh all the things that he does for us and so there's all these dynamics exist in this in this passage that we've been talking about in that again understanding the background or really understanding who the men of the sanhedrin were who the pharisees were uh the 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 authority that they carried makes Jesus' actions so much more of a big deal. It makes Jesus challenging them so much more of a big deal. And the depth uh, of the words that he says and the discussions that they get into and the debates that they're having, this is Jesus, again, challenging the most prolific, the most important, uh, the most authoritative man of the land. And he's doing it for the sake of teaching what God wants us to learn, of really getting to the bottom of of the way that God wants us to live. Yeah. Like all the all the debates, all the theological debates that he's having with these men. On the one hand, they seem to want to catch Jesus on a inconsistency and all these other things. And and Jesus continues to go to the heart of Scripture and really to to honoring and um, and glorifying God instead of just focusing on these this these few actions mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. and and for the narrative of Mark I think it's important again Mark is trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah that he is the king that God promised and in many ways I think he does that by showing how he is, his ways are better, if you will, that that in challenging uh, the Sanhedrin, he's showing how he, his grasp of scripture is richer, his understanding of God has a lot more depth, and in many ways is a lot less oppressive than what the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all of, all of them has sort of come up with.
Yeah. You know, I think something I'm taking away from just this conversation is, um, I think as people, we have a desire to categorize and specify things that aren't clear. And, you know, these guys came to God with a very specific idea on how to relate to him, um, through the temple and through the different, um, traditions and things that they had set up around the Mosaic law. And in that passage at the end of chapter 12, God's answer is simple, is that he wants it all. Um, he just doesn't want pieces and he doesn't want, I think God is always pushing our boundaries further than sometimes we're even comfortable with, but his, his answer to, you know, what, what do you want from me? God is the end of Mark 12, where he says, I just want everything. I want your devotion. Um, and so I think, I think that passage with the widow is just the perfect way to end the whole passage because it brings it back to, um, what God wants, but then also the radicalness of that. And we see as we go forward in Mark, how these groups really respond to Jesus and what they do, the lengths that they will go to, to get him out of the picture because they're so angry with him. Yep. Uh, I think this is a great place to uh, end this podcast. Hopefully you have enjoyed our discussion here. And uh, what we hope is that you've really uh, enriched your understanding of Scripture and sternly understanding of Mark 11 and 12. Uh, next time that we do this, the, our next podcast is going to be about Mark 13, which is Jesus predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And it's a super interesting uh, chapter that I think if you've heard the last two podcasts, it's all going to come together. And uh, hopefully you're on. It's a challenging passage. It's a challenging chapter to understand. But we're going to do our best to explain it, especially in light of the past couple of episodes. And uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this. Uh, we do want to cool. remind you that uh, the Ether podcast is a crowdfunded effort. And so we're able to do this uh, thanks to your support. If you want to learn more about what we do, uh, you can check us out on Patreon, and it's patreon.com forward slash EtherMMC. And uh, you can also find us on social media at EtherMMC, on Facebook, on Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.